Well, if you have your Bibles with you again, I invite you to turn with me to the Old Testament book of Psalms, the book of Psalms. If you're a guest with us, we've been doing a study through uh, the book of Psalms for the summer, and this morning we are at Psalm 6. If you're using a pew Bible, you'll find it on page 570, Psalm 6. And I want to speak for a few minutes this morning on this subject, if only I hadn't, Psalm 6. And this is what the Word of God says. O Lord, rebuke me not in your anger, nor discipline me in your wrath. Be gracious to me, O Lord. For I am languishing. Heal me, O Lord, for my bones are troubled. My soul also is greatly troubled. But you, O Lord, how long? Turn, O Lord, deliver my life. Save me for the sake of your steadfast love. For in death there is no remembrance of you. In Sheol, who will give you praise? I am weary with my moaning. Every night I flood my bed with tears. I drench my couch with my weeping. My eye wastes away because of grief. It grows weak because of all my foes. Depart from me, all you workers of evil. For the Lord has heard the sound of my weeping. The Lord has heard my plea. The Lord accepts my prayer. All my enemies shall be ashamed and greatly troubled. They shall turn back and be put to shame in a moment. If only I hadn't. These four words describe the pain of regret that is a common experience in every single one of our lives. How many times have you and I said, If only I hadn't said those words. If only I hadn't lost my temper. If only I hadn't made that purchase. If only I hadn't taken that job. If only I hadn't lied. If only I hadn't committed sexual sin. If only I hadn't given up. The sting of regret is sharp in these four words. If only I hadn't. David knew firsthand the pain of regret that you and I often feel. I imagine that David said at one time or another, if only I hadn't stayed home from the battle. If only I hadn't stayed in bed until the afternoon and skipped my spiritual disciplines. If only I hadn't looked at Bathsheba when she was bathing. If only I hadn't brought Bathsheba into my chambers. If only I hadn't lied. If only I hadn't committed murder. David, like us, knew too well the pain of regret 
that is accompanied with the consequences of sin at the hand of God's discipline. Psalm 6 is the first of the seven penitential psalms in the book of Psalms in which the author experiences suffering as a result of God's discipline. He confesses his sin and asks God for mercy and forgiveness. You'll notice in the superscription at the top of this psalm that this is a psalm of David for the choir master with stringed instruments and it was to be played and sung according to the Sheminith. Now the word Sheminith is hard to pronounce. I practiced it this week. And it is also hard to define. The most commonly proposed root meaning of this word is eight, leading some to identify it with an eight-stringed instrument or an eight-note scale. And the fact that this word occurs in 1 Chronicles chapter 15 and verse 21, along with the title to play on a stringed instrument, points to the meaning of a range of voice. The psalm is to be sung at a lower octave, keeping with the solemn tone and nature of David's words. And like the three previous psalms, Psalm 3, 4, and 5, the background for this psalm is David's exile from his son, Absalom. In this psalm, David sees his circumstances as God's discipline for his sin, and he pleads with God to have mercy on him and to forgive him and to extend grace to him and to deliver him from his enemies. Psalm 6 gives us penetrating insight into the life of David. The unconfessed sin in David's life was devastating. And while this psalm does not record David's actual confession of his sin, it does record the contrast that the pain of unconfessed sin has with the power that comes when sin is confessed. In this psalm, David records the stages of his difficult experience of moving from the consequences of his sin to confidence in the saving grace of God. And through David's experience in this psalm, we see how God uses discipline to restore his people to holiness. So I want you to see three truths as we journey through David's stages from unconfession to confession. First of all, I want you to see David's agony in verses 1 through 3 and verses 6 through 7. John Phillips wrote in his commentary uh, this description of the first seven verses of this psalm. He says the first seven verses of this psalm are one great cry of anguish. There is no confession as such, just a hopeless wail wrung out of a tortured soul in the darkness of the night. What we have here is not conscious, orderly, systematic laying out before God one's sins and shortcomings. No, he says, this is a soul on fire, on the rack of torment, suffering the dreadful pangs of awakened conscience, crying out for release. 
His distress is so great, he cries out all night long. And there can be little doubt from the first few verses of the psalm that David is suffering from the results of divine visitation. And I concur with his description of the first seven verses. It's heavy. And it describes in detail the pain that David was feeling over the consequences of his sin and holding on so long from confessing it and God's hand of discipline and what that brought into his life. And friends, as you'll see as I walk you through this text, what David experienced is the same thing that you and I experience for the consequences of our sin when we don't repent of them and confess them. So look with me carefully, and in verse number one, you see in his agony that he lost divine favor. He says, O Lord, rebuke me not in your anger, nor discipline me in your wrath. David feels overwhelmed by what is happening to him. He knows that he has lost favor with God. And as a result, David senses that God's hand of discipline is resting heavily upon his life. And when you study the language of verse number one, you find that in the Hebrew text, the order of the wording places the emphasis in verse number one on God's wrath. Now, I want you to notice carefully what David says. He did not pray that God would not discipline him. Do you see that? He didn't ask God to not discipline him, but rather he prayed that God would not rebuke him or discipline him in anger or in wrath. He prayed for God to deal with him, but to remove his anger and his wrath from his life. He knew that he had lost the favor of God over his life because of his sin. He knew that he was under the heavy hand of God. And so he didn't say, God, don't discipline me. He said, God, remove your wrath from me. It's a similar prayer that the prophet Jeremiah prayed in Jeremiah chapter 10 and verse 24. And I want you to listen carefully to why Jeremiah prayed the prayer like David prayed. He says, correct me, O Lord, but in justice, not in your anger. And listen, listen to why. Lest you bring me to nothing. And that's the heart behind David's prayer in verse number one. God, discipline me, rebuke me, deal with me in my sin, but don't do it in your anger because if you do it in your wrath and your anger, you'll bring me to nothing. You will absolutely crush and destroy me. And by making this petition, David is acknowledging that he is painfully aware that he has lost the divine favor of God on his life. And that his suffering is a result of God's discipline. And so these words are an implied confession of his sin. But he didn't just lose divine favor. Look at the beginning of verse number two. He lost physical strength. He says, be gracious to me, O Lord, for I am languishing. In this verse, David cried out for relief from God's painful discipline. And he described how he was feeling as languishing. 
This word has the sense of a plant that is wilting and withering. It is describing a weakened physical condition. It describes a life that is wasting away because of sin and because of the consequences of sin in a person's life. What David is testifying to is that he has no energy. He has no drive. He has no ambition because his sin and the consequences of his sin have crushed him and weakened him physically. And it begs the question, when you're dealing with the consequences of your sin and you feel like you've lost the divine favor of God and you feel like your strength is waning and it's leaving you, what do you do when you feel you're under God's wrath and discipline? What do you do when you feel the way that David felt? Well, you do what David did in verse 2. Do you see what he did? He pleaded for grace. Oh, God, be gracious to me. He knew he deserved the discipline of the Lord, but he desired grace. And so he prayed that God would give him undeserved relief and tender compassion in the midst of the painful consequences of his sin. God, I'm struggling physically. I've lost your favor. Would you give me grace? Thirdly, in verse 2, in the beginning of verse 3, in his agony, David lost spiritual strength. Look at what he says. Heal me, O Lord, for my bones are troubled. My soul also is greatly troubled. David's physically weak, and he's spiritually terrified. The word bones that he uses to describe his condition can refer to the whole physical structure of our bodies, but the word especially used in the Psalms often refers to the spirit that resides within the bony structure. It could literally be translated inner turmoil. And so when he talks about his bones, he's talking about the spiritual struggle and the inner turmoil that is going on inside of him. He is testifying that everything in his life has been affected by his sin. He is in complete inner turmoil and struggle. And notice he uses the word twice in verse 2 and in verse 3, the word troubled. It literally translates terrified. It's the same word that is used in Psalm 2 verse 5 when God speaks of terrifying his enemies. Except in this psalm, in Psalm 6, it is David who is being terrified by God. David feels as if he is one of God's enemies. And in verse 3, he uses this same word troubled to describe his soul. And so his bones and his soul, his entire being is downcast. It's discouraged. It's in dismay. Everything within him is greatly, he says, greatly troubled, greatly terrified. And friends, I want you to understand this morning that David's description here is important. The language that he uses reminds us that the consequences of sin and the accompanying suffering that comes with those consequences are never one-dimensional. They affect us physically. They affect us emotionally. They affect us mentally. And they affect us spiritually. There is a high price to pay 
for our sin, especially when it remains unconfessed. And so what does David do? Well, you see there in verse 2, and he says, Oh God, be gracious to me and heal me. Heal me physically, God. Heal me mentally. Heal me emotionally. Heal me spiritually. Restore your favor to me, God. Heal me. At the end of verse 3, we see the fourth characteristic of his agony, the loss of emotional strength. But you, O Lord, how long? There's a great contrast at the end of verse 3 between the condition of David's soul and the timing of God's response to his pleas. And David has lost all emotional strength and he's showing signs of impatience. He asks what you and I ask. How long, Lord? How long? He's physically weak. He's spiritually terrified. He's emotionally drained. He's anxious. He's surrounded by his enemies. He understood that his suffering was a result of divine discipline for his life. And so all he could do was cry out for God's gracious deliverance. And he cries out and he says, As for me, God, I'm terrified. But you, Lord, how long? How long? And here's what you need to understand in the text at the end of verse 3. David is so troubled, he doesn't even finish his sentence. He just says how long and just ends. He hangs it at the end. He is so desperate. He is so discouraged. He is in so much pain and agony. He doesn't know what else to say. And so he just says how long and sits in his agony. It's a powerful, powerful description. God, how long do I have to wait? How long until you'll forgive me? How long until you'll cleanse me? How long till you'll restore things in my life? How long? But he's not finished. There's a fifth characteristic of his agony in verses 6 and 7. It's the loss of physical rest. He says in verses 6 and 7, I'm weary with my moaning. Every night I flood my bed with tears. I drench my couch with my weeping. My eye wastes away because of grief. It grows weak because of all of my foes. David is reminding us that there is not one of us that is immune from dark nights and deep valleys. He's overwhelmed with his pain and his grief. And as a result, he's suffering sleeplessness. He's tossing and turning in his bed. Look at the text. His pain was so intense, he spent his nights. Here's how he describes his nights. Moaning and weeping and flooding his bed with tears. He took the bed in the cave where he was hiding out and he made it a water bed. He was crying so much from the tears of his pain. And his tears knew no end because his sorrows and his suffering knew no end. This is a man full of regret. And you can almost hear him in the night saying, If only I hadn't done that. If only I hadn't done that. If only I hadn't done that. How long, God? How long? 
Do you know what all of this agony leaves him with? Look at the text. All he has to show for this is weariness. The word weary that he uses refers to mental and emotional and physical exhaustion. It describes the wasting away that was taking place in David's life and soul as a result of the prolonged period of suffering. He's describing his sorrow as weariness. And in verse 7, you see that the weariness that is taking its toll on David's life is evident in his eyes. Haven't you ever heard the phrase that the eyes are the window of the soul? How many times when you've been through a rough season or you've seen someone else go through a rough season and you look at them in the face and the first thing you notice is the condition of their eyes and you can tell by looking at their eyes that they're not doing well. David's saying, if you would look at my eyes right now, all you would see is weariness. And it's a picture of the state of my soul. It is the picture of the state of my life spiritually and mentally and physically and emotionally. There's no life in my eyes. There's no vitality in my eyes. My eyes are so swollen from crying, I can't even close them and sleep if I could sleep. Before one of his most well-known psalms, Psalm 32, in Psalm 31, David summarized the pain of his condition pointedly. And in Psalm 31, in verse 10, this is what he said. My life is spent with sorrow and my years with sighing. My strength fails because of my iniquity and my bones waste away. This is David in complete agony because of the consequences of his sin. I wonder this morning, have you ever felt like David? Have you ever felt the way David is describing in this psalm? Do you feel like David feels this morning, this very moment? Maybe you're saying to yourself, how did the pastor know how I felt? How did he know what was going on in my life? Oh, I didn't. It's the Holy Spirit of God taking the Word of God to show you the state of your condition. The state of how desperate you are before God. The sense of the loss of God's favor. The sense of the loss of physical strength, of spiritual strength, of emotional strength. Oh, friends, I want to tell you this morning what David found out. That the only proper response to this agony of the consequences of sin is acknowledging your sin to God in confession and repentance and pleading to God for His divine grace and favor and restoration. It's exactly what Proverbs 3, 11, and 12 says. My son, do not despise the Lord's discipline or be weary of his reproof. For the Lord reproves him who he loves as a father and the son in whom he delights. Or oh, if you're experiencing the dis disciplining hand of God this morning, friends, it's not because he hates you. It's because he loves you. And he wants to restore you. 
And he wants to bring you to holiness through his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. When we not only see David's agony, in verses 4 and 5, we see David's appeal. He writes, Turn, O Lord, deliver my life. Save me for the sake of your steadfast love. For in death there is no remembrance of you. In Sheol, who will give you praise? In these verses, David felt separated from God, as if the Lord had turned his back on him and hidden his face from him. And sensing that his close intimacy with God had been forfeited because of his sin, David prayed. And if you'll notice in verse number four, he made three requests. Turn, God, deliver me, and save me. The word turn is a powerful word. It's a hinge in the entirety of Psalm 6, and it's a hinge in David's thoughts transitioning from verses 1 through 3 to verses 4 and 5. And with this word, David is asking for a drastic change. It felt like he had lost God's favor. It felt like God was set against him and that God had abandoned him. And he's praying and he's asking for God to drastically and dramatically change his course and his dealings with him to return to him, to end his trial and to heal him. Turn back to me, God. Show me the light of your face and your favor on my life, God. Turn to me. Help me. Deliver me and save me. Rescue me from the physical and emotional and spiritual pain and weariness that I'm experiencing. But here's what you needed to notice in the text and not miss. David prays this prayer based on God's character and what he knew to be true about God. And I don't know if you realize this or not, friends, but when you study the Psalms, One of the things that the book of Psalms does more than anything else, besides describing exactly how we feel on a daily basis, it elevates the character of God to the highest heights. And that's what David does here in verse number four. He prayed his prayer for deliverance and turning and saving based on the character of God and specifically God's steadfast love. It's a covenant word that describes God's unwavering faithfulness to keep his promises to his people. It's introduced to us in Exodus chapter 34, verses 5 through 7. The Bible says that the Lord descended in the cloud and he stood with Moses there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. And the Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, listen to the description, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. And David understood that about God's character. And so David prayed what he prayed because he knew the God he was praying to, that he was a God of grace, He was a God of mercy. He was a God who abounded in steadfast love. He was a God who extended forgiveness to his people for generation upon generation upon generation. And what I want you to see in this text, friends, is that David had no other basis to plead with God than the basis that he used, the character of God. And I want you to understand this morning 
that David didn't need any other basis to pray to God than God's character. His character is sufficient. His steadfast love, his mercy, his grace, and his forgiveness is sufficient for every single one of your sins. There is not a sin represented in this room that is greater than the covenant steadfast love of God. And that's the basis in which you come to Him and find your deliverance and your salvation and your restoration. This verse illustrates for all of us the importance of doctrine and specifically the doctrine of God in understanding who God is for our Christian lives. What God has said about Himself and what God has said that He will do on behalf of His people is our only hope in dealing with our sin. Friends, the only way you can deal with your sin is based on what God has said about Himself and what God has said He will do for His people. There is no other way to deal with it. And David understood that. I love what he does in verse 5. He, he gives another prayer. And, it, and, and it's almost an apologetic. In verse 5, he's reasoning with God. When you read the text, and he's motivated in his prayer because he wants to praise the Lord. Look at what he says in verse 5. For in death, there is no remembrance of you in Sheol, God, who will give you praise. And David knew that if God didn't deliver him from his enemies, his earthly life would come to an end. And he would be placed in the realm of the dead, the place of Sheol. And he says, in the place of the dead, there's no remembrance of you, God. What's he talking about? Oh, it's powerful. You can't miss it. It's really good and helpful. The word remembrance means more than having data in your memory bank like you would have on a flash drive. It has the sense of recounting and repeating the things that God has done on your behalf and on the behalf of others in praise and in worship. It's what the psalmist describes in Psalm 111 and verse 4. And this is what he says. He has caused his wondrous works to be remembered. The Lord is gracious and merciful. He has caused his wonderful works to be remembered. And what the psalmist is teaching us and what David is teaching us is that God has made his wonderful works a memorial. His great deeds on behalf of his people, his wonderful, amazing, righteous, holy character is to be kept alive in the memory of his people through praise and through worship. And what David is saying to God is that if God does not deliver him, how in the world will he be able to tell others of the great and mighty things that God has done in his life? How in the world will David be able to keep these mighty works, this amazing character of God in the memory of the congregation if he is dwelling in the place of the dead? So God, 
I need you to turn. I need you to deliver me. I need you to save me because you created me for a purpose. And my purpose is to worship you and give you praise and give you honor and give you glory and point all of the people that you've called me to serve to you. And God, how can I do that if I'm in the place of the dead? Turn to me. Deliver me. Save me. Keep me alive so I can give you glory with my life. That's why I'm going to tell you this morning, friends, it matters what we pray in church. It matters what we read in church. It matters what we sing back to God in church and what we sing to one another because everything we pray, everything we read, everything we sing, everything we hear is, is pointing God's people to the wonderful and mighty works of God so that he would be glorified and his name would be praised and worshipped and exalted above all. And that's David's desire. Oh God, restore me, not just for myself. Restore me so you will get glory out of what you've done in my life. Well, I have several applications about this point. And I don't want you to miss any of them, but in particular, this first one. In his pain, in the midst of the consequences of his sin, would you notice the text carefully? David did not run from God. In his sin, in his pain, in the consequences that he was experiencing, David did not run from God. He ran to God. He used the covenant name for God, Lord, in all capitals in your Bible, the personal name for God. He used it five times in the first four verses, and he used it three more times in the remainder of the psalm. Instead of looking for a way out from his pain apart from God, David in his pain looked to God. He knew that God was the one with whom he must deal. The Lord. I wonder this morning, do you know that? James Boyce said if there's a turning point in this psalm, this is certainly it. It is when David, whether by training, habit, or sheer discipline, called upon the name of the Lord. Listen to what he says. Learn from David at this point. In times of victory, call upon God. Praise him. In times of defeat, call upon God. Ask for help. In times of temptation, call upon God. Seek deliverance. In the dark night of the soul, call upon God. Request light. God is our pathway through the darkness. He is our one sure hope in life and death. He is our hope even when we are unaware of his presence. Deal with God. That's what David did. Application number two. Do you realize that in the midst of your sin and the painful consequences of your sin, you can cry out to God for deliverance with confidence that he will respond to you in mercy, grace, and love? You can cry out in confidence not because you promise to get your act together, but because God promises to act on your behalf. 
He promises to accept the work of his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, on your behalf. And because Christ died for every one of your sins in the past, every sin that you'll commit today, and every sin that you will commit in the future, you can have confidence through the work of God's Son, the Lord Jesus Christ on the cross, that through His death and His burial and His resurrection, when you confess your sins and repent of your sins and trust in Christ for your salvation and your forgiveness, you can have confidence that in God's Son, Jesus Christ, you are loved by God, you are accepted by God, you are forgiven by God, you are redeemed by God, you are given a future and a hope by God through His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And it is all a result of God's loving kindness, grace, and mercy on your behalf. Not because of anything that you deserve, but because God is so great. Application number three. Do you have the same perspective of David when it comes to suffering? Is your desire for the pain to end also accompanied with the desire that God would be glorified in your life, that he would be magnified, that he would be exalted and praised and worshipped and reminded of how great he is by the way people see his work in your life? That was David's purpose, that God would be glorified. Well, we see David's agony and his appeal. Finally, in verses 8 to 10, we see his assurance. Look at what he writes. Depart from me, all you workers of evil, for the Lord has heard the sound of my weeping. The Lord has heard my plea. The Lord accepts my prayer. All my enemies shall be ashamed and greatly troubled. They shall turn back and be put to shame in a moment. Something significant takes place in the text, beginning in verse number 8. It's easy to see that David, in the progression of this psalm, has now confessed his sins and repented of them, and he's experiencing God's forgiveness, God's mercy, and grace. And here's how we know that. Beginning in verse 8, David has a new holy boldness about himself. He is renewed with an awareness that God is for him and that God is with him. And in verse number 8, notice what he does. He stops addressing God and he begins talking to his enemies that have surrounded his cave. And notice what he tells them. Depart from me. Get away from me. Boldness. Courage. Confidence. Assurance. Call it what you will, but David is different in verse number 8 because he's dealt with God. And David's words in verse number 8 are an echo of the words of the greater king, the Lord Jesus Christ in the New Testament at the very end of the Sermon on the Mount when he talks about the final judgment and people will come and stand before him and they'll say Lord Lord did we not prophesy in your name did we not cast out demons in your name did we not do mighty works in your name and Jesus says this is what I'll say to them see if it sounds familiar to what David said in verse 8 depart from me I never knew you David is speaking judgment to them he is speaking defeat. 
David is talking. Don't miss this, church. He's talking as if he's already got the victory before the battle was ever fought. That confident, that assured, and his confidence was based, look at the text in verses 8 and 9, on the assurance that God had heard his cries for healing, grace, and help. He says in verses 8 and 9 that God has heard my weeping, God has heard my plea, and God has accepted my prayer. Here is a man who is journeying through the consequences of his sin and God's discipline for the consequences of his sin and he's moving to the forgiveness of his sin, the restoration from his sin, and the confidence that comes from God's work in his life. He moves from suffering, weeping, moaning, grief, and weariness to joy, courage, and confidence. And I'm telling you, only God can bring about a work like that in a person's life when they get honest with their sin and they get honest with where they are in their relationship with the God of the universe who created them. And then in verse number 10, he anticipates his deliverance from his enemies. He states that they're going to be ashamed. And notice what he does in the text. This is so rich. They're ashamed, verse 10. They're greatly troubled. Do you notice that word? It's the same word that David used in verses 2 and 3 to describe himself. And look what he's doing now. He's using it to describe his enemies. I was troubled. But you, look at the text. You will be greatly troubled because the hand of God is on my life and they'll be turned back and they'll be put to shame it literally describes a chaotic defeat that there will be total chaos among his enemies when they're defeated and they'll be shocked by it these are the enemies that God used to discipline David for the consequences of his sin. And now that David has been restored, he has confidence that God is going to use the rod of discipline and change it and turn it for a rod of victory. How good is God that he could take the very thing that he's using to discipline you and turn it around and make it a means of victory? Only God can do something like that. And if you don't believe that this morning, you've not read your Bible and your God that you came to worship today is way too small. Way too small. This is what David said in Psalm 56, 9. Then my enemies will turn back in the day when I call. This I know that God is for me. Oh, don't miss this, church. This is going to help somebody in here this morning. You feel like you've lost the favor of God. You've blown it so bad that you could never get that back. You feel physically exhausted. You feel spiritually and emotionally and mentally exhausted. All you feel is weariness on the inside but if you follow David's example David says you can lay down in your weariness and you can rise up in courage and confidence and assurance and you can testify that you know that God is for you for what he's done in your life we see a picture of it in the New Testament too. Hebrews chapter 12 and verse 11 
For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness. The pain that you are experiencing now for the consequences of sin, if you will just deal with God, will lead to fruit in your life. Fruit. Peaceable fruit. Dale Ralph Davis said, prayer doesn't change things, but prayer lays hold of a God who changes things and who in prayer changes you. And sometimes in the midst of it all, he gives you the assurance that your plea has been granted. And God changed David when he prayed. Where's your assurance found this morning, friends? Where are you finding your courage? Where are you finding your confidence? David found it in the Lord. What about you? In light of everything that David has said to us through this psalm, I wonder, I wonder this morning what you need to say to God in response. David knew firsthand the pain of regret that is accompanied with the consequences of sin at the hand of God's discipline. He felt what you and I feel every time we say, if only I hadn't. But because of the Lord Jesus Christ and his work on the cross, those four words of regret never have to have the last word over your life. There is hope for deliverance from the devastating consequences of sin, and it is all rooted in the sacrificial death of God's Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, on the cross. And through His Son, God promises to hear our pleas for mercy and for grace and forgiveness. Oh, friends, God delights in forgiving his children. And just as it is our nature to sin, it is God's nature to forgive those who confess and those who repent. And in Psalm 6, the contrast couldn't be clearer between the pain of unconfessed sin and the power of confession of sin. Let's pray.